Thanks, Betty, for uh, sharing a wonderful uh, story that God is writing in your life and in Kai uh, through uh, your house church and through all that is going on uh, with us. There was a uh, little girl who was uh, talking with her mom one day after she came home from church, and she said something to the effect of, you know, Mom, I, <clears throat> I sang the song that said, um, God, he's got the whole world in his hands. That must mean that God is really, uh, really, really big, right? And Mom said, yeah, God is, is, is really big. And the little girl said, if, Mom, God is really that big, then how come I can't see him? Like, where is God? And Mom said, well... You can't see God because God is spirit, for one, but also God is in heaven, and so you can't see him. But God is also uh, in your heart, like he lives in your heart, and so you can't see him. And she thought about it for a second, perplexed, and she said, does God live in you also? And she said, and the mom said, yeah, God lives in every person who has put their trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And so the girl thought about it for a second, and she said, mom, if God is that big, and he lives inside of our hearts, then shouldn't he show through? That's what she said. Shouldn't God show through? As we continue in our series on this countercultural kingdom that Jesus came to bring, as we look at the hard teachings of Jesus, that's what we've been asking for the past, I don't know how many weeks. Shouldn't God, if he's really in us, Shouldn't he show through in our lives so that people see something different about the way that we live as opposed to the way other people live in the kingdom of this world? Shouldn't there be something different? As we look at this uh, hard teaching, we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount by looking at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 43 through 48 and talk about one particular way that really sets the people of God apart from the rest of the world. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, and this is going to be some hard stuff that we talk about, but something that if we understand and get it, it is transformative right, for our own souls as well as for the world. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. This is God's word. Jesus is speaking, and he's talking to uh, people in the kingdom, his followers, his disciples. He says, you have heard that it was said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors on that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. This is some pretty hard stuff. In what kingdom, in what civilization, in what culture have you ever heard them say that your citizens are to love their enemies? It is completely Countercultural. It is completely counter to everything that common sense dictates. But Jesus says, this is the way it's going to be in my kingdom. And if you get it, then the world is going to take notice. Three things about this very difficult teaching. First thing, it's natural for us to love those who are close to us. It's natural for us to love those who are close to us. Jesus begins saying, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. Okay? He's not quoting from the Bible here. You remember, we've been seeing this for the past few weeks. Jesus isn't quoting the Old Testament teaching. He's not quoting scripture here. He's quoting the teaching of the Pharisees. And so he's saying, basically, you remember the Pharisees, how they always say, love your, enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what they say. So where do they get that idea from? If you look in Leviticus, you don't have to look here. I'll, I'll read it and you can write it down and, and trust that I read it correctly. Leviticus 19.18, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19.18. So the Pharisees take that part of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. And they did two things with it. First of all, they cut the tail off of it so that no longer is the standard love your neighbor as yourself. It's just love your neighbor. Okay? And that's a big difference there. To love your neighbor and then to love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's like if you're walking on the street, you're hanging out downtown, and you see somebody who doesn't have a lot, somebody in need, and they've got a can, and they're shaking it, and they're saying, please give some money to me. Okay, to do the loving thing might be to get out some change or to get out some money or get out a gift card and to put it in their coin in their coin. Uh, jar and say god bless you and go on and you could very easily justify yourself saying you know what i did a loving thing today that's what it means to maybe what it means to love your neighbor but what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself at that point you have to begin to think if i were in his shoes what would i want i wouldn't just want a little bit of change i wouldn't just want a couple dollars I wouldn't just want a meal or a cup of coffee. I might want a jacket. I might want a hotel room. I might want a lot more. And so the, the, the standard is completely different. When Jesus, I'm sorry, when the word of God says, love your neighbor as yourself, and they truncate that part, basically it becomes we've ripped the sacrificial aspect out of the law to make it a little bit easier, a little bit more manageable, a little bit simpler for us to do. Instead of love your neighbor sacrificially, you just love your neighbor. Okay, cool. And then they added the second part to it to make it a little bit easier to justify their actions. Where the Bible said, love your neighbor as yourself. They said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that's a lot easier to do than to love your neighbor as yourself, isn't it? That's, I mean, if, if you're my enemy, yeah, fine, I can hate you. That's cool. I, I have no problems doing that. Where did they get that idea from? Well, they got that idea from the Old Testament. Do you remember God? said, Israel, these are my people that I've chosen. Okay, much like today, the church, God's people that he's chosen. And he says, you will be set apart as a counterculture. The way that you do life is going to be different so that you will be a light to the nations. So all the other nations of the world worship all these different gods and idols. So God says, listen, Israel, for you, you shall have no other gods before me. You're going to be different so that you shine your light in the midst of the world. You will not make any idols or bow down to any graven images. You will not take the name of the Lord in vain. Everything that he's telling them to do was in order that they might be set apart, that they might be different, not for the sake of being different, but for the sake of being like God. Okay, there's, a, there's a world of a difference between just being different and being godly. We're not different just so that we can be different. There are people who are different and they're just weird and you look at them and say, they're, they're different. They're just kind of weird like that, which is okay, but we're not called to be different for the sake of being different. We're called to be different for the sake of being like Christ. Therein lies the ultimate difference that causes people to take notice of us.
And so in order for them to be different, they had to be set apart. And so God said things like, hey, uh, don't marry their women because they will not because there's something bad about their race or bad about their people. It's just for the simple fact that they worship other gods and they will lead you astray. And so in God's desire to uphold his holiness, his glory, his worth, and the reputation of the name of God amongst the nations, he said, be set apart. And there were times where God used the Israelites to enact judgment on nations who had defamed the name of God. So God would say, even to the other nations, if you repent, then you will be saved like Nineveh. You repent, Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them if they repent, then God will relent from sending his judgment. But oftentimes when the nations continued to rebel against God, God would use Israel as a means of judging them. And so he did with the Amalekites. He did it with the Moabites. He said, when, they, when you enter into the promised land, wipe out the Canaanites in order that they will know that there's only one God and it's me. And so the, the Pharisees took that judicial understanding of God using Israel to judge the nations and they used that to justify their hatred towards their enemies. They said, well, if God used Israel to wipe out the enemies of God, then we too can hate our enemies. So not only did the Pharisees live in this way, but they taught other people to do it as well. Therein lies the genesis for this idea where they would go around telling people, hey, love your, love, love your neighbor, uh, but hate your enemy. And so if that was the teaching of the Pharisees, hey, y'all, love your, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, then the question became, <clears throat> who is my neighbor? Because they wanted to, 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 to define it in order they can tighten the circle around them to make sure that they knew that they were doing what was right. Because the smaller your definitions, then the easier it is to obey that command, isn't it? Um, definitions are important. Because it helps get a sense of clarity. The other, uh, maybe like four or five weeks ago, uh, our little guy Elijah was in the living room and he threw something across the living room. And it almost hit, I think it almost hit Elise, our, our baby girl. And so uh, Elijah knows that he's not supposed to throw things across the living room. And so Olivia said to Elijah, Elijah, did you just throw that ball across the living room? And without batting an eye, he said, no. I just put the ball up in the air. Wow, that's pretty smart. I had to give it to him. According to him, in his mind, no, I didn't throw it. I put the ball up in the air. He's two years old. In his mind, he's clarifying the definition so that he could be justified in what he did. As long as I didn't throw it, I didn't do anything to break the command of mom. I just put the ball up in the air. That's what the Israelites were trying to do. Can we clearly define our terms as what they said? Who is our neighbor? What does it mean? Because anyone outside of the circle of my neighbor, I can go ahead and hate them. That's what the Pharisees are teaching us, right? And so they tried to clarify and tried to define who is our neighbor. And in time, it came to pass that the understanding of a neighbor in its narrow sense was just anyone that you're close to. Like T-Mobile had this ad campaign about five, seven years ago called your fave five or your fab five or your fave five where you choose five people in your inner circle and calls to them would be free. And so that's what the Israelites were trying to do. They're trying to define that circle tightly to say, who is my fave five? Who are my favorite people? Who are my neighbors? Because to them, I will love, but to everybody else, I have complete justification, at least according to the Pharisaical definition, to not love them. 
So who would you choose to love then, if that was your definition of an You choose people that you like. You choose people that are kind or people that will give something to you, people that you feel like liking, people that is easy for you to like. That's who you would choose. That's who I would choose because it's natural for us to love those who are close to us. But Jesus says here, look, in verse 46, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Think, listen, that's what everybody else in the world does. That's what, if we live like that, y'all, then we're no different from the most rank and vile sinners in the world. If God is really that big and he lives in you, shouldn't there be a difference in the way that we live and in the people that we love? You know who takes care of people who are close to them really well? I'll tell you, the mafia. They take care of their family. They take care of their friends. They'll blast anybody who fights against these people. And what Jesus is saying, listen, if all you do is love the people that you love, that you want to love, that you like, that's easy for you to like, then you're a lot more like the Gambinos than you are like God. Who are you more like? Are you more like the mafia? Are you more like your father in heaven? How do you define the scope of this command to love others? How are we doing at loving people? Because it's natural to love the people who are close to us. Anybody can do that. The worst tax collector can do that. The ones that are considered traitors and vile sinners in the sight of all of Israel. He's saying, listen, y'all, they're doing it. They're doing it. And if you ain't no different from them, then how is the greatness of God shining through you? It's natural to love the people who are close to you, who give you something, who like you, who make it simple for you to do that. But Jesus says, that's not what I've come to bring. That's not the kingdom that I've come to bring because the life that I bring in you is countercultural. It's different. So what is he saying? Second thing we see, it is supernatural to love our enemies. It's supernatural to love our enemies. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, haha, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's uh, several different words in the... Uh, in the New Testament, in Greek, to define this word love, what we consider to be love. And there's a word called eros, E-R-O-S, which, from which we get the word erotic. Eros is a love between a man and a woman. It's a, a love between a boyfriend and girlfriend or someone who has a crush on somebody. I love you, husband loving his wife, wife loving her husband in that way. This is eros love. There's another love called phileo from where we get the city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is a love between friends, the kind of love that a best friend has for his or her BFF. This is phileo love. There's another love that was used to define love for either your family or for your country. It's a sense of loyalty called storge love. And these are all loves that come from your insides. Like I feel like, I, I think of my family, I feel like loving them. It's generated from within me. I see my best friends and I want to love them. I see Olivia and I want to love her. These things are all natural kinds of love that flow from something that happens inside of me, from my heart. It is a feeling that's generated and because of that or some motivation from within that causes me to say I want to love. But that's not the word that God is using, that Jesus is using when he says love your enemies. The word that he's using here in the context of loving our enemies is this word called agape love, agape. It is a love that outside of the Bible is only used six times in Greek literature, something that the Bible writers use and they baptize it 
in the language of the Christian tradition to talk about a love that comes from God. To talk about the unconditional kind of love that God has for his people. It's the kind of love he says here. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. It is an indiscriminating love. A love that causes. It's not just the Christian farmer. It's the non-Christian farmer who gets the same sun and the rain on them. He sends his sun and the rain as much on the believer as he does for the blasphemer. This is what he's saying. This is called common grace. That there's some things that happen to believers as well as to non-believers. That happen simply because of the common grace of God. He's saying this is the love that God has for his people. It does not depend on our circumstances. You see... Uh, there's a lot of talk in the Bible, actually in this Sermon on the Mount, and you, you've seen it the last couple weeks, especially last week. There's a lot of the language and terminology of the Sermon on the Mount, which we have adopted into our modern everyday lexicon. Things like turn the other cheek or go the extra mile. These things came from the Sermon on the Mount. They weren't used in literature before that, but people have recognized the importance and the significance of that sermon that we use it in our uh, everyday language in our conversation. But the question that we have to ask is, this is great literarily, but is this really possible practically? And honestly, think about this. It, I know some of you heard last week's sermon to, you get slapped and, and, and backsided uh, on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. I know you heard that and you're like, you know, I don't, I don't know how to do that. That's weird. Like, that's crazy. I got a message from someone last week. They said they, they heard this message. And immediately they said, I'm not sure how to process through this because there's somebody in my life that I despise. And the last thing they wrote uh, in, this, in this message to me was, I only wish the very worst for this person. I know that it's wrong, but I wish all blankety blank to come on them. And they went on and they told me the, 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 the ways in which that person has poisoned their family, their siblings, and all of these things. It is just awful stuff. As I was hearing it, I felt genuinely bad, and I thought, I, it, you're right, I understand. The kind of poison that has been injected into your life because of this person, we're, we've all been in places like that, I know. You've been, you've been victimized by people, and things have happened to you that should never happen. Is it really possible then? For us to love our enemies. I really, is it really possible? I know Jesus said it sounds like a good thing to do, but is it really possible for us to do this? To love the person who has caused that much pain in your life. To love the person that causes you to be in the, in the, in the therapist's office the way that you are because of this one particular person who maliciously and willfully and intentionally did these things in order to rob you of your innocence and of your life and of your childhood and your joy. Is it really possible for us to love a person like that? Is it really, really possible or is it just pious talk? And I promise you guys, it's not possible if all we're doing is thinking about our own human volition and our will and our desire. That's why this teaching is not given to people on the streets. Jesus is talking to his people. Saying, listen, it's natural for you only to love your people, people who are close to you. But in order for you to love your enemies, it takes a supernatural power. And if you, if you really believe the things that we sing in here, that with man, 
There's a lot of stuff that is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. If you really believe this, then it's possible for you to love your enemies. It is possible because when the life of God who raised Christ from the dead begins to live in you, right? That which is natural gives way to that which is supernatural and a new kind of a power arises. It's the kind of power that caused Jesus to hang on a cross and look at his persecutors and with loving care say to them, pray for them, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. It's the kind of love that causes Stephen who's being stoned by people to look at them and to look to the heavens and say, do not hold this sin against them. There is a power in the believer through the Holy Spirit. There is a power in the believer, the kingdom of God, his life in us that makes it possible for us to love when there is no drop of feeling of love within our own hearts. Do you believe this? Because if you don't believe it, then you cut the very heart of Christianity out from underneath its feet. Because this is a very, there's, there's something very powerfully countercultural about the life of Christ within us. And if you can take that step and begin to acknowledge, then that's the first step to transformation because it is possible. It's what, I mean, it's happened throughout. There's a, there's a, a woman named Corey Ten Boom. I don't know if you guys are, are familiar with it. She wrote this amazing, there's an amazing biography about her called The Hiding Place. Short little book, well worth your time to read. And I've, I've cited this book and quoted her on in different occasions, but she was a, a sympathizer of the Jews during the time of Holocaust. And for 18 months, her and her family, her father and uh, others rescued countless Jews uh, from, the, uh, from, from, from the Nazis. They hid them. And after 18 months, in uh, 1944, uh, they were captured by the Nazis. Right? Ten family members were captured. Uh, seven of them were released and let go. It was her, her sister, and her father. And they were taken to, um, I forget which concentration camp it was, but they were taken to some uh, concentration camp where they languished and were there for years and years. Um, her sister and her father ended up dying in that concentration camp. And the only way that she was released was because there was some kind of a, a clerical mistake, and so they let her go. Um, but 1947, three years after she was, she was captured, she was going around and um, as a follower of Christ, she was going throughout Germany and she was preaching, teaching um, to believers in Germany. And as she was praying about it, she said, here's the, the one message that uh, Germans need to know, need to hear in light of all that has happened, is they need to know that there's a God who forgives them. And so she would go throughout Germany and she would teach this message that God forgives you no matter what you've done. Even the worst of sins could be forgiven. Even the sins of a man like Hitler who exterminated countless people for the sake of what he thought was a greater good. And in one of these places, as she was sharing this message, she said these Germans looked at her with just stoic disbelief. Like, could it really be? Can God really forgive me? Are you kidding me? After all that I've done. And after the talk, different people came up and, and they were saying thank you and pray for me. And, and out of a distance, she saw one face that she recognized. 
And it was the face of one of the guards. The concentration camp where her and her sister and her father were. Not just any guard, but she said he was the worst of all of them. Countless times. She remembered that she had flashbacks of how she and her sister be stripped naked and how so many times they'd be paraded past this guard. And all of these images and all of these things came flooding back to her. And she said, oh, no, I don't want to see this guy. And this guy walks up to her and he gets to her and he says, I appreciate the message that you shared that God forgives us of everything that we do. And since that time that I was in the concentration concentration camp as a prisoner, I gave my life to Jesus and I became a follower of Christ. I've accepted this message, but I want to know from you. I want to hear it from your lips. Can you, a lover of these people who have been killed at my hands, can you forgive me? And he extended his hand to shake her hand. And she said, this is the, and all of these thoughts came flooding. Her. There's no way I'm going to, there's not a chance. This is, let me read to you what she said. This is what she said in that, in that situation. She said, I couldn't forgive. That would be the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. He held out his hand for what may have been hours. Forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even then I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is telling us to do is not something that you and I can do naturally. But with man, with woman, with us, what may be impossible is possible with God. Do you believe this to be true? Jesus wouldn't tell us to do something if through his power at work within us, he did not deem it possible. It's natural. I know that we will only love those that we want to love. But he's saying with the power of God and the kingdom life in you, it is possible for you to love your enemies. The last thing that we see, loving our enemies begins with a choice, not a feeling. Loving our and you can—I mean, you could do this right now. You could do this right now. You think of the person that you hate the most, 
the person who has robbed you of all of those things of life, the reason why you're in so much pain, the reason why you have panic attacks, the reason why you're driven to anxiety, the reason why you're driven to seek illegitimate loves, you think about that person right now, and by the grace of God, you can make a choice to say, God, I will follow you. It doesn't begin with a feeling. Remember these other three loves all begin with a feeling. You look at the beauty of your spouse. You look at the beauty of your child. You look at the wonder of your best friend, and you say, I want to love them. I want to do something for them. But agape love does not begin with a feeling. It begins with a choice. That's what God says here. He says, he causes the sun to go down on all these people, righteous and the unrighteous. It's a choice that we make. And here, I think what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his book on the Sermon on the Mount is extremely helpful here. Okay? The command that Jesus gives is not to like your enemy. He doesn't say you have to like your enemy. He says love your enemy. So the question is, is it possible for me to love somebody that I do not like? Again, to help clarify these things, to like someone That's a feeling, it's an emotion, it's something that begins with us. But to love someone is something that begins from outside of us. It's a choice that we make independent of how we feel. In other words, it is possible for you to love somebody that you do not like by acting as if you like that person. What does that mean? Because when we love someone, We're seeking their best interest. When you like somebody, you want the greatest good for them. Your best friend, your family member, your child, your spouse, your parents. If you like somebody, you want what is the best for them. Therefore, regardless of whether you actually like them or not, when we treat somebody as if we do and we seek their greater good, regardless of how we feel, We've taken that first step towards loving our enemy. What does it mean then? It means that love is a choice that manifests itself in practical ways. Look at what he says. He gives us three ways that we can love. Uh, Verse 44, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He's not saying, listen, if you love your enemy, you're going to earn the right to become sons of your Father in heaven. He's not saying that. He's saying, if you love your enemies, it's not payment to become, it is proof of the fact that you are a child of God. Because it's not natural, it's supernatural. And when you love people that the world cannot love, You're showing that there's something godly in you. St. Augustine said to love those who love you, that's human. To hate those who love you, that's demonic. But to love those who hate you, that's divine. To love those who love you, that's human. To hate those who love you, that's demonic. But to love those who hate you, that's divine. And you begin to show forth to the world the reality of your sonship, of your daughterhood as a child of God. It says pray for those who persecute you. You know, one of the best ways that you can overcome your enemies is to pray for them. There were people that I didn't like uh, when I was in college, and I told my campus pastor, I said, Pastor IJ, we need to pray against them. 
in what they do. He said, no, 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 you don't need to pray against them. You need to pray for them. And as soon as he said that, like everything began to change in my mind. There were these people from the Korean Student Association. They were making, they were just getting people that I cared about, just getting them drunk, party, just getting them drunk. And I said, you know, we got to pray against them. He said, no, we need to pray for them. You know what happened? As soon as I began to pray for them, I began, my heart began to change towards them. I began to love them. My heart began to be moved for them. And by the time I was my last year at the university, this is, I said, I want to go and I want to love them on their turf. I genuinely had a heart to love these people. So I went to these Korean Student Association parties. I had no desire to drink, to dance, to get do any womanizing, any of that stuff. I just wanted to go and I just want to show, listen, I can go onto your turf and I can love. And after I began to pray for them, something began to shift in, their, in the way that they saw me. I don't think they ever knew that I hated on them, but they knew, that they, they knew what I stood for. And so I went to these parties. These are massive parties, hundreds of people, Korean students at the University of Virginia. When I walked into that place, they respected the life that I lived, that they put away all of the alcohol. And they said, Tell older brother, we're not going to drink while you're here. I said, that's not why I came, but I appreciate that we have that kind, that you have that, that you see me in that way. That I'm not, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to, to say you need to do that. I don't, that's not why I came. I just wanted to come and I just wanted to hang with you and I wanted to love you and to show you that the love of God is bigger than the things that separate us. But as I get, begin to pray for them, my heart towards them change. You have somebody that you don't like somebody that you hate, the best way that you will probably change in your heart for them is you begin to pray for them. Not, for, not against them, not that they die, but you pray for them. There's one pastor who said, you know, when, this is what I do. When there's two people who don't like each other, two brothers that hate each other, I bring them into my study and I have them kneel down together with me, three of us, and I say, pray for each other. And he says, on countless occasions, those who knelt as enemies rose as friends embracing one another. You pray for the person that you hate. You pray for your enemy. I know this is not the, the right context, but you having a hard time with your husband or wife? Kneel down together and pray for one another. Wishing, wanting, praying the best for each other. Pray. It's how you show your love for your enemies in action. Second thing, he causes, verse 45, his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Here's what he's saying. The, the righteous and the unrighteous farmers both need rain and they both need sun. He's saying meet their needs in practical ways. Can you meet the need of a person that you consider to be your enemy? Just thinking about that, just in, in, a, in a very intentional way. Somebody that you hate. Maybe you can go and you can buy them a coffee and say, hey, you know, I just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you and thinking about you. That will probably go a long way to melting both your heart and theirs, especially if they know that you hate them or you consider them an enemy. This week, can you do that? Not a random act of kindness, but a concerted, thoughtful act of kindness where you go and you do something to meet the need of a person that you don't like. To help them see there's something different about them. There's something divine about them. And even up until this point in your life, even up till today, they think there's something jacked up about you. You do that, they're going to think there's something different. Maybe something happened this weekend in their lives to cause them to be different. The last thing, verse 47, and if you only greet, if you greet only your brothers, 
What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. The Bible always talks in the New Testament so many times. It talks about greeting people, greeting people. That's why, man, when we begin service, guys, I say this often. Greeting time is not just a throwaway time to wait for people to come in. This is highly important and significant time. I know some of y'all hang out in the bathroom because y'all don't like talking to people. Understand, listen, if you only greet those who greet you, who like you, you ain't no different from a pagan. That's what Jesus is saying. How is there a difference in you? Come and go and show love. Who do you greet when we do have time of greeting? Do you just go to your friends? You just go to the people that you want to see? Go to the people that you saw last night and, and, and hung out with for eight hours? Go to somebody that you don't know. Show the love of Christ to somebody that you don't know. That's how we live a different kind of a life. When I was uh, uh, preaching at this church in Il- Il- Illinois a couple weeks ago, and at the end of uh, two services, about four or 500 people at each service, and they asked me to stand in the back, and they, just like this, they filed out row by row like this. And so they had all these people walking by. They said, just shake everyone's hand and say hello to them. So they were just flying by me, like, hi, 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 hi. At the end, I was, like, so tired. I said to them, I said to their pastor, I said, that was, like, so dizzying. And I felt bad for the person I was standing next to. He heard me say hi like 500 times. I couldn't change it up much until they, they said something else. I would say something else. But shaking their hand, I was like, man, that was crazy. And this is what he said. He said, you know what? Uh, I pray for that time. I pray for that greeting time. Because with thousands of people in our church, for some people that's the only personal connection they have with me as their pastor. And he said, when they leave and they they go to a different place, he says, sometimes people write back and say, what I miss the most about your church is that time where I could shake your hand and you look me in the eye and I look you in the eye and we have that connection as you go by, as I go by. There's something powerful about greed. That's why we stand back there every week. That's to me, that's a powerful time. Some people, you know this, it's the only hug you're going to get all week long. I value that time. I value this time. Significant. So if you only greet people that are your friends, your brothers, you're no different from anybody else. Go show love to someone. But greeting in those days was not just a, hey, what's up? There was a significance. There was a blessing that was carried through with it. When they would say shalom, it's not just, what's going on, man? Shalom was to pronounce blessing over them. To look at them and say the peace of God in every sphere of your life is being pronounced over you. I think the Latin cultures do that. When you say to, uh, to, to Spanish-speaking people, Dios le bendiga, God bless you, they don't ever say thanks. They always say amen. They're receiving a blessing. When you greet people, you greet your enemies with a blessing. You're showing the love, the divinity that is living within you as a child of the king. Greet people and you love them. And you win them to Christ. He says, listen, when you do this, verse 48, be perfect, therefore. Your heavenly Father is perfect. A lot of people will strip this verse out of its context and say, you know, we got to be perfect, and we can't do that. That's not what Jesus is saying. saying, listen, this word perfect, God is morally perfect, sinless, all that stuff, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about sinless perfection He's talking, the language of this perfect is used when you talk about a sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice, the kind of sacrifice that was useful to accomplish 
the function for which it was created. It is complete and mature, not childlike. It's used to describe a teacher, not a student. Saying you have reached maturity if you can love in this way. So basketball season is starting. Let's use the example of a, a basketball player named LeBron James. You may look at him. I look at him and I say there right there is the picture of a perfect basketball player. He can shoot, he can drive, he can pass, he can defend, he can rebound, he can do all of these things. He's a perfect basketball player. I'm not saying he's not going to miss a shot. I'm not saying he's not going to dribble a ball out of bounds. I'm not saying he's, gonna make a bad, he's not going to make a bad pass. He will do those things. But when he's perfect, it's saying he's complete, able to complete and fulfill the function for which he was made. That right there is a perfect basketball player. When he's saying be perfect, he's not saying be sinless. Even though he does tell us to be holy, he's saying, mature up and be who you were redeemed to be. There's something different about you, child of God, that the rest of the world doesn't know. There should be something that people look at in you and say, there's something God-like in them, their ability to love the unlovable. As you hear this, Feel like you can't do this? Feel like it's too hard? If you feel that way, can I tell you that you're as close to the heart of the kingdom than you can be? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones who realize, I can't do this. I'm bankrupt. I don't have it in me. So what do you do? When you realize you can't, you throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Say, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every second, I need you. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. And he says, listen, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. It's this filling that enabled Jesus to spill out forgiveness to his enemies. It's that filling of the Holy Spirit, Acts 6, Acts 7, that caused Stephen to spill out love and forgiveness to his enemies. And it is that very infilling of the Holy Spirit that causes us to spill out. If God is that big and he's inside of us, then wouldn't he show through? When we love our neighbors in this way, our enemies in this way, we show forth the love of a father says in Romans 5, 10, that while we were his enemies, he redeemed us to himself through the death of his son. Romans 5, 8, Rehan, I'm sorry, Leo said that in the video. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the epitome of loving your enemies. Jesus loved his enemies. That means that he loved you and he loved me in that way. So we say, show me how to love as you've loved me. Teach me how to love in that way. Because to love people that are close to us, to love our neighbor, to love people that's easy to love, that's natural. To love people that are our enemies that we hate normally, that's supernatural. It's not a feeling, it's a choice. That's a choice. We can choose that now. Let's pray. As we uh, pray, as we reflect, as we uh, think about 
this hard teaching. It's hard, but at the same time, it can be so freeing. Because he gives this teaching and he says, you know, the reason I give this to you is because it reflects my character. Because I'm the one who loves enemies and I loved you in this way. The reason he gives this teaching is because it reflects the character of God. The reason he gives us this teaching is because God has done this first. He never calls us to do something that he didn't do before. He's done that for you. And guess what? God doesn't just love you. God likes you. He likes you. He wants to be near. He wants to be around you. He loves you in this way. It's only when we know this love, only when we know this love, that we're going to be able to love others. Let's pray. Maybe you have uh, someone in your life right now that you can't love, that you're not able to love. Someone in your life that you really despise because of all that they've done. Someone that you really hate because things that have happened. You think of them and you think, man, no way I could love them. Maybe that first step can be, God, help me. I really don't like them. But I want to honor you. I want to do what's right. So, Father, I pray not only you'd help me to love them, but I pray for them. Lord, help them to see you, Jesus. Just begin to pray in that way. It's one thing that every single person can do. Every single person can pray. My two-year-old daughter, one-year-old daughter, she can pray. A 90, 100-year-old person on their deathbed, they can pray. The sickest person, the healthiest person, they can pray. Not all of us can lead music. Not all of us can preach. Not all of us can cook a meal. Not all of us can give thousands of dollars to the poor. But every single person can pray. And if everyone can pray, then everyone can shape eternity. Let's pray. Lord, help me. Lord, I pray for this person. Lord, bless them, touch them, change them, renew them to become more like you. Let's love our enemies in practical ways. Let's honor the Lord in this way. Let's pray together for a couple moments. us when there is nothing lovable about us, that every single person who's ever lived was an enemy of God when you sent your son to take the punishment that we deserved and to hang naked and crucified for a mocking world to see. But you did that in order that we might have the right to become children of God to all who received him to all who believed in his name you give us that right so Lord may we shine forth the truth of who we are may we show forth the reality of who you saved us to be 
thank you that you are the king of this kingdom and you're the savior of the world. We worship you. We honor you, our savior king. May we live to make you known in this world through the way that we live and through the way that we love. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray.